Welcome to the WAU Most Awesome Founder podcast, a show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. I'm your host, Ries Vaans, and today I'm very happy to again welcome Garrett McGowan as my awesome co-host. Today, we are very excited to have Maximilian Eckel as our guest. Max currently is the managing director of the WAU Entrepreneurship Center, a job we actually took over from Garrett some years ago. Today, we want to talk with Max about the state of venture funding in Germany and Europe. And of course, we will also delve into the role of the WAU in this ecosystem. Max, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. We always start with the same question. We always want to give the floor to our guests to briefly do some storytelling on their background. So I would say the floor is yours. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, the, the question is always, where do you begin with these things? Uh, and <laughs> if, you, if you tell a story, obviously, it sounds always so coherent and straight uh, in, in the aftermath. But um, I think the, the most important first starting element for, for my journey to me being here with you today is um, that I started um, my studies at, at VAU, that I decided I wanted to, to study business administrations, which was not the, the initial plan. I first thought I, I studied computer science, and at some point I thought, oh, maybe computer science plus business administrations, yeah, Wirtschaftsinformatica. And then at some point uh, I went to a career fair in Munich where I grew up, and uh, actually got hooked on this private university that I should have a look at. I, I never thought about private universities. Growing up in Munich, I had awesome public universities right in front of my doorstep. But um, I actually took uh, one of my best friends at the time, and we drove in a, in a small Fiat Panda uh, to Palenda and stayed there during one of the open days. And I really got hooked on the on on the atmosphere of the people. Um, the, the, the person I was staying with, the student at the time, he just gave me a key to his apartment and said, you know, like I, I have case studies, um, but over there is a house party, just go there say, I sent you and, and they'll be nice to you. And they were nice to me, they, they included me right away. And this experience alone was, was a huge turning point for me. And um, I afterwards went through the application process of, of where, ooh, uh, my friend who went with me actually became an engineer. So. Maybe he did the right thing, I don't know, but um, <laughs> I then spent another year um, doing doing the cliche gap year things of the time. So I went to Australia for work and travel, um, already knowing that I would have my spot at VAU, uh, which which gave me a little bit of like nice confidence of what's next. And at VAU, I was very much in the beginning thinking about, oh, you know, maybe I want to be a consultant because so many people here want to be consultants. Luckily, I have to say for, for me personally now, I slowly moved into the, the startup bubble of VRU. Um, I run the three-day startup conference in uh, Finder and in Aachen at the time. That was a shared event and um, participated in business plan competitions for VRU and really also after my bachelor's, um, did the, the again cliche thing of the time and uh, teamed up with two of my fellow students, um, got exist grant, got money from business angels, VAU business angels, and moved to Berlin to start our mobile app uh, market research startup, which 
that's yeah, that's almost like the stereotypical story of a WAU founder. <laughs> Teaming up with other WAU students and going to Berlin. I think we will talk about that later on also. And, and get money from WAU alums uh, as business angels. Absolutely. Yeah. Checked all the boxes. We got all the WAU interns in, in our summers. So that next cliche, we were already the first generation <laughs> that actually had to pay a salary, you know, because of regulatory changes, uh, which I'm happy that we did at the time. And um, yeah, the story afterwards did not go the way of the, the, the most glamorous VRU entrepreneurial stories that we can tell. So uh, we were super naive. We, we tackled a market we knew very little about with lots of creativity and enthusiasm and so on, but um, a little bit too much enthusiasm about how much our B2B customers would react to our solutions. We pivoted, which was a very good decision. Uh, but at that point, I also have to say, as this like super young, naive guy who also lived with one of his co-founders the whole time, so was never able to switch up, uh, I at some point ran into in a, a burnout where then I also really very openly had to talk with my, my co-founder that, uh, you know, like, I can't do this forever anymore. So we actually found a replacement for me. And luckily, also the, the company later uh, was also then sold to to one of our biggest clients. Again, also not a huge exit, uh, but something I think that worked out well uh, for, for all of us. And uh, I then had to think about what to do next. You know, I just had this moment where I said, okay, uh, you know, this was too much work uh, for, for too long of time. What do I do next? I only had a bachelor's from BAU, so I, I considered doing a master's program because I thought either now or never. And I actually had a spot in Munich uh, at the Technology University for, for the, their master's program. Uh, and I was excited for that because it had a, a non-business part in it. So it was business and something else. The problem is I had no interest in doing this business part. Um, what happened next though, my girlfriend of the time, now wife, got a job in Maastricht. And so I had to think about, okay, maybe I do my, my master's in Maastricht. And there I found a study program that had nothing to do with business and that seemed very appealing to me. Um, I'm a huge science fiction freak, like for the longest time. Uh, and they had a study program that was called um, Science and Technology Studies. Um, so like dealt with how science and technology affect society and politics and the other way around. And, and I thought, okay, this, this sounds like something that I want to do my, uh, like spend my time on. Uh, for, for the foreseeable you know, few months of this master's program. And I did, and I loved it. And um, in that time, I also got in contact again with Professor Brettel. Professor Brettel being an WU alum and uh, a professor in, in Aachen University. Aachen is just 25, 30 minutes away from Maastricht. And I had many touch points. As I said, I organized three days startup uh, where actually the, 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 the club the Verein behind today's startup was at the faculty of, of Michael Brettel in Aachen uh, at that time. I uh, got exist via Aachen, so there were all these connections anyways already. And, and he said, Max, hey, um, we, we just got a lot of money from the Nordrhein-Westfalen government. And uh, one of the most important things that we have to also cater to is that a lot of our startups want to get the exist grant. And you got the exist grant yourself and you went a little bit through the process uh, yourself. Do you want to 
at the startup coaching here in Aachen uh, with all the changes going on here at the moment. Uh, so that's that's what I did. Was a nice thing because my wife was still working in Maastricht, so I like I didn't have to see what you know, like we didn't have to move or anything. And in that time, then I also uh, got approached uh, by Impaxi. I always stayed in touch uh, with with the alumni association of the U Impaxi. And at that point, there was this this whole uh, like consolidation of different entrepreneurship support structures. Uh, you know, Garrett was was making waves with the accelerator already, but there was also an incubator. Um, it was run by PhD uh, students of, again, like also Professor Prattel. And for me, what was so appealing uh, about coming back to VRU, because that was then the discussion we were having, was that I always thought that VRU was such a, such a raw diamond. I'm not sure you say that in English as well. Like uh, something, no, no. something that you can, something that's completely not represented in a way that it deserves, especially the community. People were doing so many amazing things. And yes, some insiders in the bubble knew about it. But if you talk to, I don't know, a local politician in, in who says he cares or she cares about uh, our entrepreneurship, like they very often had no idea uh, about their own, which is something that I experienced being in Aachen, being in this bubble of, you know, public servants dealing with the topic of entrepreneurship. So in the end, uh, I got I got the opportunity to take over from from Garrett, and since then I've been here at VRU and loving my job, loving uh, the the chance to serve this this amazing community. Yeah, so you in the end closed the loop of being a bachelor student at VRU and. After some uh, your own entrepreneurial experiences, your first uh, support in Aachen, you came back to WAU, where you're now uh, leading the entrepreneurship center. Okay, so actually what we wanted to do today is to kind of delve a bit into the, the venture funding landscape in Germany and also Europe. And, and I think the reason was a bit that we uh, had some interesting reports emerging in the past weeks. On the one hand, we at the Entrepreneurship Center launched our own report called Germany's Venture Funding Ecosystem in 2023, where we have relied on Crunchbase to map a bit what is going on in the German venture funding ecosystem and how WAU is impacting that ecosystem. And at the same time, uh, there was the report uh, from Atomico, Oric, and some other partners on State of European Tech 2023, which actually gave a broader perspective on the venture funding landscape in Europe. Um, so what we agreed up front is to kind of check these reports, look for some interesting findings, and use that as a starting point to have actually a kind of open discussion about what is actually the state of venture funding today and what is the role that WAU can, should, or is playing in that respect. So maybe let us first take a look at uh, the German funding landscape and, and also the footprint of WAU. And uh, we analyzed Crunchbase data and we found that approximately like 8% of all venture funding raised in Germany in 2023 is actually coming from companies that have at least one WAU alumnus as a founder or a co-founder. Now, maybe Max, I will start with you and then I'm also very curious to hear Garrett's opinion about this. 
Can you maybe explain our audience a bit how at this small private business school in the outskirts of uh, Rhineland-Pfalz is able to have such a substantial impact on the venture lending uh, landscape in Germany? What is, according to you, kind of the main reason for that? Yeah, I mean, that's that's something um, that I get asked or preemptively um, tackle whenever I introduce VRU to people, especially mm. people who don't know about VRU. I mean, obviously, I don't have the one answer. Um, uh, probably a lot of factors came together. One, however, that's that's rather clear that, that this development had a huge impact was the, the creation of Rocket Internet by a VRU alum, uh, Oliver Zamba, and the subsequent uh, recruiting, heavy recruiting by Rocket Internet, Oliver Zamba, um, of VRU students into this extended network of entrepreneurial ventures that in the end came out of it. And with this, this first generation of rocket internet or like at least uh, at the same time uh, happening um, entrepreneurs that also kind of represent the, the first generation of Berlin startup founders in general, um, at least with like mm. what we see today as the, the Berlin startup scene. Uh, we had the opportunity and the, the big luck to be honest, to be part of this very beginning and, and have since kind of profited from the compound interest that came from that. So mm. the, the first generation founders became the, the business angels of the next generation um, because of their proximity, uh, both in, especially, you know, like being uh, part of the same community, but a literal proximity by them going back to, to find out, to recruit and give presentations and so on. They inspired the next generation. And so by now, we are probably now in the sixth, seventh, eighth generation, whatever, uh, of, of founders that profited from the experience of the previous generations, the, the, the capital of the previous generations, and so on. And most importantly, also this entrepreneurial um, spirit that is just now yeah. a clear part of the, the campus life. And and maybe then let me briefly go to Garrett because of course Max, I, you, as you explained, you're an insider. You you have looked at from the inside. Garrett, you're much more kind of an outsider. That I would say almost. Hey now I did study in VAU as well. So. Uh, but I mean, you almost like stumbled upon yeah, VAU, not at a certain point in time. Yeah. At that time, when you started to get uh, kind of involved in, into the WAU activities, indeed, when you became also a, a PhD student at WAU, what was your perception on this ecosystem? I mean, you nailed it. I, I fully stumbled upon it. I was mm. I was in my own little bubble with my own little research project that I was interested in doing. I was my bigger struggle was what is a forty-something-year-old guy doing going back to university? <laughs> in a tiny little town in Rhineland-Pfalz. Um, so, you know, it it didn't take long. I would say within like a couple of weeks of going to pay a visit, I started unpacking the history and, and seeing those connections, which um, I think I've been obsessed with that history a little bit since because it's such a freaking anomaly, you know? And I mean, mm. I went to... I went to other universities for my bachelor's and master's in the US and Canada that have a nice footprint as well, but per capita, nothing like this, you know? and and I think Max kind of covered 
that part really the history behind it really well of course Dries, you and i talked about it on a previous episode when we looked at the the somewhere thesis but to me the question wasn't where did all of this come from but where is it going mm. and and as soon as I showed up there and really, I would say particularly when I took over the Entrepreneurship Center um, as this, in this kind of interim director role, and I, at that point, you're kind of tasked with at least being one of the catalysts to help uh, not, not only grow the ecosystem, but grow the, the outside perception of the university. And, and frankly, it scared the shit out of me a little bit because I saw some <laughs> real red flags. Right. And mm. the way I looked at the past at Vehu was there was this, you know, kind of magical intersection of all of these things happening. There were a few really, really bright people uh, that, you know, got into entrepreneurship at just the right time um, in Germany. Um, and there were, it was like a green field and they sparked this energy. And I, I've, I've talked on this podcast, I've talked to both of you individually before. You know, I built my first company 2009, 2010 in Germany. And mm. I know Rocket had already started. There were some things going, but it was a still like the startup world wasn't a big thing here, you know? And then I come back 10 years later and this whole explosion had already happened, but we were already starting to see this transition, right? And the transition was, you know, consumer internet, marketplaces, e-commerce and whatnot. That wasn't that easy to break into anymore. And we were already getting into this new world of deep tech. And that's where I mm. saw the big problem was, hey, here's this Vehau, like incredible, young, ambitious as hell business minds, um, which were great in the kind of, you know, web two world. But now as we're moving into this 3.0 web 5.0 industry world where we're dealing with deep technology, um, there was going to be a real gap. Um, and I think we'll talk about this a little bit when we talk about the the kind of state state of the ecosystem report. But mm. the thing that I found most exciting, and I still don't have an answer for, and I'm, I want to pass that question back to you guys at some point, is it's still the magic is still happening. It's still working in spite of some of these major gaps that exist in mm. the skill and knowledge base of this next generation. I would hypothesize you two guys probably play a significant role in that. I think Max has brought up Malta Brettel and Aachen and the synergies that exist uh, between Vehau and Erveteha and how we're how we're seeing more founders from Vehau with not without technical skills pairing with the right technical people at the right time. So yes, I think some of that is historical reputation, but it's also business minds innovating in their way, which is, you know, taking different nodes and being the connectors that bring those nodes together, which is exactly what I think innovators and entrepreneurs out of Vehau have been doing since day one. Yeah, Max, do you want to reflect on, on what Garrett is saying? So on the one hand, we have this huge kind of legacy of success and that you have a kind of ripple through effect where the prior successful generation is investing in the future successful generation. But of course, conditions are changing at the kind of startups that now become unicorns are different from the ones 10 years ago. It's now much more deep tech focus, which is not necessarily indeed, I would say, the strength of the Vehau students. Despite of that, eh, if we look at the hardcore numbers, 
the numbers in terms of the impact on the venture ecosystems seem to be very stable. It's this kind of stable 8%. So what is going on here? Yeah. I mean, many good points that uh, both of you identified here. I think we have to acknowledge that while I see deep tech becoming more and more dominant, and, and I'm happy about that, as Germany has a lot to offer in the deep tech space, um, still a lot of the, the, for example, venture capital being distributed in Germany goes to also less deep tech uh, ventures. You know? uh, it mm. is still also fintechs. It's still very operations-heavy uh, business models. And I think one reason why VRU is, is still doing quite well is um, a lot of this, this skill set that you need to build these really big companies that also make up the, the, the high volumes of venture capital being distributed um, heavily rely on, on also you being able to attract capital. Um, meaning you have to be good at storytelling. I, I know, Dries, you have an opinion on, on that, how, how good their <laughs> students actually are uh, if it comes to storytelling. But something that I think their students, especially alums at some point, really do well or can do well is they understand the rules of the game. So they, 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 can, talk with the, they can talk with the capital, uh, with the investors. Many their alums are also the investors. And... For everything that requires execution and operations, and even in, in rather deep tech spaces, um, this is very often the case for, for actual growth, uh, where ULMs have a lot to contribute still. Um, in some cases, they can still do it by themselves. And I also think, like Garrett mentioned, this will be the exception. I, I really like the Oliver Zamba podcast, how you said, you know, the, the time and like now there would not be a second big bang, a second ecosystem being created just by business students uh, coming together and, and creating something. We still have these cases, things like NPAL and so on are these, these exceptions to the rule where it's all about execution and access to capital. Uh, but in other cases, there will be more and more the requirement for their students and alums to join forces with other ecosystems like Aachen, like Technical University Munich and, and the many other great technical institutions and, and communities that exist in Germany. Good point. Yeah, maybe to say it a bit provo provocative, what, what you're saying, Max, is actually the German venture landscape is maybe a bit more risk averse than uh, for instance, the US, and that actually fits with VAU students who might also be a bit risk averse and not the kind of the crazy deep tech people uh, that, uh, yeah, that go for the, the big shots. Or, Garrett, would, yeah. you, would you see something there? Or? I mean, I, yeah, I do see that a little bit. I actually just today wrote a little piece on uh, related to that a little bit about these... Okay. Uh, you know the the moonshot mentality. How it, yeah. it, it doesn't. It's not the. It, it's not as if it doesn't exist. It's just not. I think, kind of part of the cultural history of Germany in general. Um, it is more mm. kind of embedded in the American psyche. Like we're we're taught that you know what differentiated my 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 parents. Well, my father at least. My mother's German, but um, you know they. They hung their hats on landing on the moon and doing these really, really 
grand things and the you know the nuclear era good or bad and and whatnot and and so americans have this real identity with these giant leaps and if you look at the history of germany um there were some leaps without question automobiles being pretty profound in, in there the number <laughs> of others but like for a long time it's been very kind of incremental kind of growth and i i do see a mindset where um Entrepreneurs here are very opportunistic and very strategic, right? They identify gaps in the market and fill them with operational excellence. And, mm. and you know, Max mentioned that, and it was something that I wanted to kind of ask because to me, it this is a conundrum. Um, both of you guys know very well how when I was at Vehau, I was kind of constantly arguing for a greater focus to be put on entrepreneurship education and more practical entrepreneurship education. And I think we do see that, particularly in the Master of Entrepreneurship. I know, Dries, you do that in a lot of your classes as well. Um, we're seeing more of this kind of hands-on entrepreneurial mentality. But as Max pointed out, I think quite accurately, is one of a lot of the numbers that have come out of Vehau have come from the companies that have really scaled, you know, NPAL raising a quarter billion euro round, right? And that mm. is indicative of operational excellence. Those mm. are the skill sets that the guys that wanted to be consultants are getting, right? Like <laughs> that's why there's this history of Vehau to BCG, McKinsey to Rocket to success, right? So mm. you see. You see the the successes right now are all about scale and operational excellence. In the meantime, I've been arguing for let's stop teaching people to be consultants and let's teach them to think outside of the box. But now I I really have to as a result of this data, I have to ask myself like maybe that isn't the right direction. Maybe it is that kind of more traditional German disciplined strategic mindset that has made how a success over all these years and con continues to today. So I'm going to push that question back to you guys. Like, mm. is that the secret sauce? Is it not the innovative mindset? It's the, the, the discipline that makes it work. I, I, Max, I, Max go ahead first. Yeah, yeah. I, I do have an opinion on that, obviously. Mm -hmm. And so I always think, um, entrepreneurship is mm -hmm. is obviously a field where there are lots of different types of successes and lots of different ways to success and i think VAU and many VAU founders have just found mm -hmm. this this one very successful path as you said you know the the, the traditional VAU founders even in my time they would normally uh, lock themselves into a room with two other VAU people, have an Excel sheet in front of them, uh, fill those Excel sheets with you know market numbers, margins, and so on. Look at role models in other countries, uh, and then and then say, okay, how much money do I need that? And really just think about how do I how do I get the margins right? How do I execute this? How how do I do this on the operational level? And I mean, there's there's also innovation in there, but you know, something like like Zalando uh, was not a technical innovation, but being able to get the numbers right so that you can actually afford uh, having three pairs of shoes out of four always being sent back to you and, and still being profitable, at least at some point profitable with it. You know, that's that's kind of, that, that was business model uh, innovation. And I think this is something where 
their ULAMs were very good. And I think that also came from the limitations. How should their ULAMs come up with deep tech innovations uh, by themselves? They, they, they can't. And while I think Falenda was a huge advantage if it comes to, you know, this, this building of a shared identity, shared culture, shared memories and everything, obviously people were kind of secluded away from a technical university and campus where you could just bump in, into an engineer or computer scientist in the, in the cafeteria or something like that. So I think it was it right what their students did? Is that the path to success? I don't know, but I think for our ecosystem and also for what I think the German market was accepting for, it was the right path. And, and, I, that's why I also believe there's still room for these kind of businesses. I mm -hmm. think luckily though, the German ecosystem has matured to a degree that now deep tech, like either aerospace and things like that, finally also get the funding that they deserve and we have a more diverse ecosystem. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, what I'm hearing you say, Max, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I like it, which is... Vehu has found a way to be the best version of itself, yeah. right? It's really, it hasn't encroached on trying to be something that it isn't and keep up with the times. It has remained profoundly consistent with its own USP, if you will, and maximize the value of that. And I think that has upside and it has downside. The upside is, is you know, to use the, the baseball analogy, you know, your people are swinging and hitting a lot of doubles, some singles and some doubles, right? And yes, I think we have had 16 home runs or something. And even out of those, we can't call them all home runs yet because they just have that value on paper, but they have some really big growth and some really big numbers. What you don't see is the entrepreneur saying, I want to populate Mars, Right. Mm. Or, you know, I want to move the German rail system underground into tunnels or, you know, sorry, I know I'm, that's just one persona <laughs> in my head at this moment. But like, you know, you're not that mindset of like true. We're going to change the world thing. You know, I mean, Oli Samor is the, the closest thing that Vehau has to the guy on the pedestal. Right. Mm. And you know, he wouldn't be graffiti in Silicon Valley, right? And not to discount anything wonderful that he's done, but that's not what some places hold up as the great, you know, the great beacons of, of entrepreneurship. But in the constellation from which he came, guy probably deserves a statue of some kind, right? So the question is, is, is this sustainable? And we, so far, it's holding, the question mm. is, is what does, what does tomorrow look like? Yeah. And I think, and let me reflect on my own experiences. I, I joined BAU five years ago and I was asked uh, to start teaching courses on entrepreneurship and more specifically a course on developing novel business models, mm -hmm. which was already a course uh, where they would do a kind of students would do a sprint in eight weeks to develop a new startup. And I coming from outside and to be honest, also having no clue about <laughs> the legacy of VAU. I had never heard about rocket internet, to be honest, when I came to VAU. So I was a bit uh, ignorant. 
so when I came and I started de designing my course, it was designed as a course like, let's create crazy ideas. Yeah, Let's do ideation to create crazy ideas, think outside of the box. And so the first time that I run this course, I was butchered by the students in evaluations. <laughs> butchered. It was like, what is this guy expecting from us? Why do we have to come up with these crazy ideas? This is not entrepreneurship. Yeah, So for them, this was even not entrepreneurship coming up with crazy ideas. And so then I started realizing and also better understanding the history of WAU that yeah, in, at, at WAU entrepreneurship is a lot about execution mm -hmm. and they're actually great in that. Yeah? And so in the end, I decided to, to some extent surrender and make sure that I kind of adjusted my teaching and also my perspective to entrepreneurship to the legacy of WAU. And so now in my courses, the focus is much more on the execution of the kind of lean startup approach, but where I actually give them the initial ideas and then they have to develop them. Mm -hmm. And that's, that, that really fits with their kind of DNA. And then they are much more happy and they are actually producing great outcomes. So I cannot complain about the quality, but it's simply a different type of entrepreneurship. And, and to some extent, I think we have to accept that that's what it is. And it has, like you said, Garrett, great advantages, but also some downsides. But I think we need to accept them to some extent. Well, I, I think, it, Max, I want to ask you a question because you're the one person that was a young student here. So you probably were in the culture more than everyone else, more than any of he us. He would have. be one that really butchered me in my course, I think, if he was in my course. <laughs> oh, on. He has some academic in him too, Dries. I think the empathy is there. Um, but yeah, listen, like, if you think about it a little bit, like, I, I always try to practice the five whys and just get down to the why, you know, in the end, why do why are these choices being made? Because this isn't a collective, right? These are groups of individuals that are choosing a very specific path. And I can't help but ask myself, why are they doing that, right? Why do they keep kind of repeating the same model? And to me, it comes down to entrepreneurial motivations. And, you know, I mean, we can talk, we can talk, you know, whatever, Daniel Pink and Dechi and Ryan of Autonomy Mastery Purpose and the, the reasons why people are motivated. And, you know, I think every entrepreneur wants autonomy and wants purpose to a, a certain degree. But the difference between going for a moonshot and populating Mars or building the next marketplace in Berlin is, I, I think there's different motivations there, right? And I, I, I hope this doesn't sound too controversial, but... One of my, I'm going to only, it's only a hypothesis. So I'm throwing it this way. <laughs> Max, I told you I wouldn't say, throw softballs. So. <laughs> or I didn't say curveballs. <laughs> but this is one of my controversial hypotheses, right? This is a private school. Um, the most of the people that study here are middle class or above. Well, there are, of course, some, some exceptions. And there is this very competitive mindset in in the environment how do you how do you keep score in a competitive environment in business well usually the measures of score come down to money whatever fundraising capital wealth generation and whatnot you can accrue tremendous wealth and reduce the risk profile by hitting doubles if you're always swinging for the fences and hitting home runs there is a 99 plus percent likelihood that you will be destitute and end up having nothing. Question, is it about wealth? Uh, and I, 
Big picture, of course. I mean, yeah. again, I, I think this differentiation between like the the collective of individuals and individual motivations, uh, we, we we definitely have to be careful there. But mm -hmm. I 100% agree with a lot of your assessments. Um, entrepreneurship in Germany, but I'm afraid also in the world, has a lot to do with privilege. Um, you you have to the more privilege you have, you, the more easy it is for you to take risks. Uh, especially if you don't go into entrepreneurship out of necessity. And in the end, VRU students and alums, um, they, I think, who said that? What, was that you in one of the last podcasts? Yeah, it, it was you in the in the Oliver Zamba podcast. Most VRU students have never failed. Um, even, even myself, you know, if I think about it, I, I grew up in Munich, uh, mm -hmm. or in the center of Munich. Uh, rather, you know, like for the environment, uh, nothing special, but German, German, like in German comparison, privileged background already. I, you know, I was like a class representative. Um, I was head of the debating society. You know, I did all the extracurricular check marks. Uh, and when I came then to VRU, I wanted to get to VRU because I was told, you know, this is, you know, it's hard to get into the program and it's very competitive. And afterwards you get into the next level of most competitive environments, you know, the top consulting companies and so on. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, if you go to VRU, uh, you know, and someone tells, you, you know, I know someone from McKinsey, this is so unspectacular uh, in comparison just because, mm -hmm. This the, the bar, what you aim for has been set so high because what you were used to was already quite high. You know? yeah. In my year, there were national players in, in table tennis and people who traveled around uh, like uh, half a continent with a bus with 17 and I don't know what. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is definitely progressed and like, like was then further developed also in this entrepreneurial space. Because if you talk to many people, as you actually do in this podcast, that, that also came from the Samba generation, they said, Oliver managed to get 100 million in such a short time by, by, by selling Alando. Like, I can also do that. Like, I'm as smart as, as Oli or like something like that. So this, this comparison, this competitive environment mm. heavily contributed. And then also, let's face it, um, if you want to make a lot of money, in a in a planned way you also don't aim for a unicorn you know you yeah. like a bootstrap venture you can make much more money especially if you have the skill set and the network and access to capital and so on that many people out there have so yeah. there's also this personal competitive component yes i would like to be one of the very select few that were a unicorn founder mm. uh and so that fits our profile and mm. comes with its advantages and disadvantages i just wish more people would know that you can actually easily study at VRU without, you know, having a, a birthday background that you, mm -hmm. you know that you can study in our bachelor and get the whole tuition paid for if you if you uh, like qualify for for the the state support, mm -hmm. uh, BAFAC and these kind of things. Because mm -hmm. yep. we need the diversity, but we profited yep. from from the like special group of people that that predominantly came into VRU. Yeah, yeah. But I think, Max, you're saying something very important, namely at VAU, we have these examples of successful founders. And for instance, 
when I talk with, with alumni that have then founded successful companies and I often ask them, why did you start? <laughs> often the story was like, yeah, one of my, um, one of the students in my cohort started a startup and raised 10 million. And this guy was much more stupid than I. So I thought if this guy can do it, I should be able to do it. So I decided to stop my consulting trajectory and go to a startup because I have seen that this guy was able to do it. So I should also be able to do it. Yeah. And I think that that's a quite a unique that, that people could have the experience. Look, the person with whom I have been drinking on a Friday evening in Wallander, and that was not much smarter than me, or maybe even not that smart than me, was able to do it. So I should also be able to do it. And I think today, that's why it's very important that we also start to have these examples of successful female founders and founders with an international background. Because again, I hope that that can inspire our new students to have the same experience saying, look, if this female colleague can do it, I can do it too and become successful. I want to I want to touch on one point that Max said, and it might be a good segue for what we're going to talk about next. And he mentioned one of my favorite words of 2024, bootstrapping. You know, it, because we're about to go into all of these reports that are talking about capital raised. Like capital mm. raised is not a metric for success. It's a proxy mm. for success. Mm. And there are uh, uh, more stories than you can count about lots of money raised that went absolutely nowhere. And the founders ended up more broke than they were, were before they started. Right. So and some of the most successful people I know in this country and frankly, the backbone of this economy for the past hundred plus years has been entrepreneurs building strong, stable companies that were bootstrapped and grew organically over time. That is now the, the middle stunt that everybody is trying to, to maintain. In the meantime, these artificially inflated values of businesses are coming from capital. One of the big challenges that I had when I was on campus at Vehau was the mindset was create idea, raise money. And that was the, it, it didn't matter if how well they sat in their apartments and mapped out segments and opportunities and competition and business models. I rarely saw one that didn't involve. And then I go to investors. Now I'm guilty of having done it multiple times. Max, you're guilty of it as well. And there's some businesses, frankly, you just have to. But if you look at the landscape of Germany today, the problems with successions, the, you know, the turnover of the, the baby boomers and the lack of services at so many levels, like the opportunity landscape right now, and I would argue for a long time moving forward, is not the venture backed game. The real wealth is going to be created not in mining for gold, but the selling the picks and shovels that do it. So. Thank you for sharing that, Max. I think it's a really something that I hope more VHU students think about. And Dries, maybe next time you design a course, it should be bootstrapping to a billion because that would be <laughs> that. I think we need more of that more of that mindset. No, yeah. I fully agree. My when I teach my my obligatory entrepreneurship course in the bachelor, I spent one module on funding, and my first slide is: if you don't need funding, please oh, don't yeah. do it. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want funding it. you need to do for a specific reason because mm -hmm. the moment you start raising funding from VC, you get into a very specific trajectory and it is a pivotal point that you can no longer escape. From that moment, you're no longer your own boss. Yeah? Yep. You have these annoying VC people that will <laughs> send you emails, ask you for a lot of stuff. So you need to 
carefully reflect upon, do I really need external funding or can I bootstrap? And if the answer is bootstrap, please bootstrap. Yeah? Mm-hmm. I fully agree. Yeah. So speaking of, I guess we should talk about all the funding that <laughs> our startups yes. raised. <laughs> Let's now delve into a funding report. <laughs> Yeah, so I think uh, Atomico and also actually our friends from Oric, they, they launch every year an interesting report called the State of European Tech. And so recently they launched a report for 2023, um, but it was a very big report, <laughs> so it took some time to go through. But I think what at least intrigued me, and we can discuss a bit about it, is if you look a bit at the overall message, at least that, that came to me, was like, look... Uh, if you look at the numbers in 2023, uh, the amount of capital raised, the amount of unicorns, the amount of uh, major rounds, it's much less than 2021 and 2022. But actually, 2021 and 2022 were really exceptional years in a zero interest environment. So these were kind of outliers that we should ignore. And if we kind of briefly ignore these two years and we look at the overall trend over time, there seems to be a nice kind of growth trajectory. Um, So everything seems to be okay. We can go back to normal. VC seems to be fine. Uh, Let's move forward. That's at least a bit the feeling that I got. Quite an optimistic report about the state of European VC. quite optimistic and i just want to hear if you would agree based actually also just on your own experiences on the kind of the the hidden conversations you have with vc people uh, does this kind of report reflect the mood in uh, the european vc landscape or would you say it's a bit different who wants to go first <laughs> i'm sure we both have a lot to say okay <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I've been entrenched in this topic quite a quite a bit lately, um, for a various number of reasons, and I think we are actually approaching a new heyday of venture capital, um, because, and the data is showing it. And I, I was actually looking for this data in the report, um, but I didn't see it, and probably in light of who the authors are, right? But what's really, to me, one of the most compelling statistics um, I've seen in venture capital in a long time is that emerging emerging funds are returning three to four X higher than established funds. So mm-hmm. what the established funds, you know, they're always going to be, they're going to have this gravitational center and they're going to be able to attract certain deals because of their grand gra- brand gravitas and profile but they can only do so much. And um, you're seeing more hyper-focused, hyper-specialized funds that are adding more value than the big ones. The big ones give brand and and big checks and big valuations, but they also come with, like you mentioned earlier, a lot of expectations for hyper-growth. You know, that's where our blitzscaling era came from as well. And so we're seeing a bit of democratization and deconcentration in this space which frankly is exciting. Um, We're not seeing innovation in the model itself, which I think will happen next, but I'm a believer Mm. that VC is here to stay. It's just in the beginnings of a a transformation in some way or the other. So the big funds, the big funds are going to have the same complaints that they've had historically, and now they're getting louder about it. And and frankly, Mm. it usually like, it comes down to, uh, macroeconomics, 
fun performance, liquidity exit options, and deal flow. It's always the same kind of top things, right? Like, yeah, macroeconomics, why? It's because if interest rates change, LPs don't want to invest. As, ma as mm. many LPs don't want to invest, right? So that is a VC problem. That's not an ecosystem problem, right? Mm. And unfortunately, I, I like to take from uh, a guy named Brad Feld who founded Techstars. He wrote a book called Startup Ecosystems, and he talks about leaders and seeders, right? And you know, investors and ecosystem folks like to think they're the leaders of the ecosystem, but they're not, you know, they're the feeders. It's the, the mm. entrepreneurs that drive the success of the ecosystem. It's just the, the ego profile of the powers with the capital tend to, tend to dominate. So I, I think like when you think of the things that VCs complain about and say that, you know, are problematic, I think they're a little bit contrived and in their own bubble. If there's anything that we need to be concerned about in Europe is the deal flow situation, mm -hmm. because the past five years have actually accrued so much capital, particularly pre-seed and seed capital, that there's just not enough good quality deals. So um, mm. using the poker analogy, you're throwing good money at bad cards in a lot of situations, right? So I think if you look at the reasons why people are, you know, I think overall trends are kind of the same, but there's a lot of whispers in the industry and in the market of what's not going right. But I think those whispers are frankly coming from the VCs, that the big VCs that live in their own bubbles. And the creative, innovative ones are finding their own niche. They're finding the very specific deal flow to their skill sets. I think in the end, if you look at what it takes to return a fund, um, you just need more. And we yeah. just need more startups. And there's mm. a, a number of structural reasons in Germany that I can speak of why we're not. Um, one of the reasons you have a lot of startups coming out of VHU, but you don't have a lot of startups <laughs> coming out of a, a Hochschule that, you know, is mm. not well-to-do kids. So we've got some some obstacles, regulatory and uh, legal obstacles to overcome. But to me, that's the only, the only issue from angels and uh, kind of smaller VCs perspective is the lack of good deals. Okay. Max... Do you have similar observations when you talk with the VCs in your ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, VCs have become uh, also more conservative, or at least like much much slower in making an investment decision. Um, I think because of also the, the the poor portfolio performance of some of the ventures, or like the poor performance of some of the ventures that they have in their portfolios um, of companies that were completely overvalued and uh, can't afford in your current fund generation to, to have more of those. Uh, also in the next best case you can. So, um, however, as, as Gary said, you still have the money um, that you want to invest. So if you, if you make less investments, if you want to be more picky, uh, obviously, uh, it will be more competitive. And, and I think also we have an amazing amount of deals that depends on how open you are as a VC, also uh, what kind of ventures you invest in. And I think that that leads me to to another trend that I'm very happy to see, similar to Garrett's trend of, of single GPs and small funds that I also appreciate very, very much. 
I see more and more VCs now being actually open for for literal deep tech, you know, research based um, um, investment like startups that come out of research and that uh, that they can invest in as VCs. Because I remember when I was in Aachen talking to VCs and angels about deep tech, if it included any kind of hardware or bioscience or something, like most people were out. Like they they didn't want that. Um, Many VCs would probably love to just invest in software as a service, um, super product-driven <laughs> ventures uh, where you need crazy distribution. And I think that's something where we do have maybe even a disadvantage compared to the US, um, both in terms mm. of the kind of founders that we have and kind of the distribution channels that are easily accessible for us and so on. So we have these operations-driven things that, again, the AU uh, community is famous for, and they also still get funding. Again, maybe one explanation why the uh, is uh, maintaining this, this high percentage in the overall venture capital volume. But what now is like the next venue that VCs can invest their money into is these deep tech ventures. And here the, the mm. problem is though, like there has been a lot of things changing, but too few researchers consider turning their technology into ventures. Um, so the VCs are ready to invest now, uh, like more and more. Uh, but still, we need much more of the technology that is already uh, like being produced and has been produced in research institutions all around the country and all around Europe to actually turn into into startups. So so that's that's something where you know I can see why VCs are generally positive, um, because even though ZARS and so on sometimes doesn't work so well at the moment, there are these new venues going more into deep tech and so on, which also proved in, in terms of numbers actually quite quite. Um, lucrative as an as a sub asset category uh i think there are still also structures uh, that we have to overcome to 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 get more of these ventures actually um to to be investable yeah i, I want to there's one other piece that i think is worth considering right if you look at the big funds that exist in germany right and how they became big funds you know they didn't they didn't generate their returns with a 20-year track record of investing in deep tech, right? So if I'm a rock star deep tech founder in Germany and I'm doing something really groundbreaking, where am I going to go? Am I, am I going to go to Berlin or am I going to go to Sand Hill Road, you know, where I know there's this history of hardware, deep technology, you know, deep learning, whatever, whatever direction they're taking. It's going to be hard for those big players to compete. And really, when you talk about the big funds, they're competing for the cream of the crop, right? They're not, they're not trying to hit base hits. They're, they're investing in, in potential home runs every time with the hopes that some return. And I think that's the big risk in this ecosystem. Um, I think, you know, London is a little bit more insulated from it, but Germany is particularly at risk with their traditional funds. Like, you know, the gravitas and the added value beyond money is not as strong if I'm building something really, really groundbreaking. Now, you know, there's, there's pharma, there's biopharma funds in continental Europe that are pretty strong. Um, 
but generally speaking, when you see the really great ventures, the ones that really hit home runs are already taken, taking U.S. money before Series A. And historically, mm. they were taking German money through seed, maybe even A, and then when it came to B+, plus, that the capital wasn't here and they had to go overseas mm. to do it. Now the Americans, the Brits, even the Chinese are cre the Japanese with SoftBank are creeping in, coming earlier and earlier. So to me, I think there, I think there are some existential challenges that the big German funds are going to have to do to transform themselves and rebrand a little bit to those founders that may not see them as you know top tier for what they do. Mm. And, and Gareth, you were talking before about the issue of deal flow, that there are simply maybe not sufficiently high quality startups to invest in. At the same time, and I was very surprised about that. So when I looked at the, the report, it actually states that there are more startups created in Europe than in the US in 2023. Um, it was actually going down a bit in Europe, mm -hmm. but that was mainly because there were less first-time founders. So which actually means that that more and more sta startups are created by serial founders, which I think is a good thing. Mm -hmm. I was surprised about the statistic that actually in Europe, there seem to be more startups created than the US. And still we seem to have this deal flow problem. What would be your kind of, can you make sense out of that? I think so. I mean, I, I think we would have to probably dig a little deeper to really understand why. And mm -hmm. I don't know if that data exists, but just because companies are being formed does not mm -hmm. make them investable. Right. And I no. think the metric that, look, we know how much money are in these funds. Right. I mean, we know funds that are run by friends of ours that have recently closed 300 million, 400 million, 500 million. There is money there. That money is not being deployed. Keep in mind, those are new funds. So the blitzscaling usually was happening in the previous funds. Right. Like clearly they're getting enough LPs to level up with a new one again. So, you know, the capital deployed is the indication. Right. If you're not seeing great deals, you're not going to invest in them. So the question to me is, is the deal flow qu quality dropping if the mm. if the quantity is not? Are they finding alternative mechanisms for funding? Are they riding out pre-seed seed phase longer? You know, are there mm. is the ecosystem being backfilled with more business angels, super angels? you know, non-dilutive funding? I think the answer to all of those questions is yes. You know, we have mm. seen a growth in the business angel community in Germany, like unbelievably since I first tried to raise capital here 14 years ago, you know? So I think it's really difficult to look at the, the state of the ecosystem when you look at it through the you know, Patagonia tinged glasses of a VC, right? You have to mm. look at it from all of these, these different angles. So, um, but that's probably a really interesting study to figure out, like where is, cap <laughs> where is capital coming from if there is indeed this many startups, but VCs yeah. big and small have been pretty clear, I think saying that they're not finding enough good deals to invest in. Yeah. Max, you're actually talking with a lot of kind of early stage startups in our ecosystem. Do you do you indeed see a kind of shift in the mindset about whether they want to have VC funding and which kind of VC funds they find attractive? Do you see the changes there? Oh, 100%. 
um, we we mentioned the the term bootstrapping, and I think I've I've never heard the term bootstrapping as much being mentioned in our ecosystem as right now. Um, so at the moment, mm. lots of startups will try to to bootstrap, not necessarily to remain in bootstrapping. I think again, the the ambition of most founders is to create those really big companies, and they are aware that venture capital can get them there more more quickly uh, and, and maybe even more planable. Um, but they want to improve the negotiation position. Um, sometimes it's also, you know, chicken egg. Sometimes also the VCs require more, you know, KPIs than they used to. Um, but mm. again, because VCs are requiring more KPIs, startup founders are working more in a way that they can actually bootstrap. If they can actually bootstrap, they sometimes think, why don't I bootstrap a little bit longer, improve my negotiation situation and so on. So uh, I definitely see that trend. And and as Garrett mentioned, I, I find that to be also quite a, quite a good trend because this venture capital from day one thing is especially important if you are in a market that is a winner takes it all game where like a lot of people mm. are starting to raise more or less at the same time and you can't afford to yeah. to to wait a little bit and i mean yeah. many of the the VRU games uh that like that or games that VRU founders engaged in where these kind of winner takes it all races <laughs> i think these winner takes it all races get a little bit less and therefore timing and funding uh, works also a little bit differently. You know, Max, I, I think you brought up some really interesting points there. You know, we, the three of us were talking offline before this recording about some of the uh, accelerator teams, right? And I won't mention any names, but one accelerator team I'm particularly fond of, you know, has now raised over 4 million and has never touched VC money. Right. And has brought in high profile names from outside of the country, too. And so I think people recognize like that's not the only way to skin the cat. Right. And I think you nailed it. Like if you are in high competition, kind of the type of environment where blitzscaling kind of matters and he who has the most resources wins the game because you can buy customers. Great. But if you're not that type of business, if, if you're in a niche, like sometimes small angel tech tickets or strategic investors can be a lot more beneficial. Unfortunately, those are the names, those are the companies that show up in, you know, our local university ecosystem reports, but tend to get kind of missed in the big picture stuff because they're, they're mm. a little bit, you know, you may be able to get a little bit of data from Crunchbase. Oh, no VC fund in there. Like, you know, it, it's kind of seen as a second tier, but I think you can have super hyper high growth high profitability businesses that, you know, strategically choose to not go down that route. So maybe that's what we're, we're just dealing with here is a disconnect between the big ticket VCs and the more grassroots bottom up style of, of, uh, building ventures, which is probably good for everyone and the ecosystem. And another reason maybe to go more into deep tech is again, there you need these bigger tickets uh, upfront to, to get beyond this point of, of technical risk uh, with a rather clear market, so low market risk in the end. So you now you, I think these big venture capital tickets, you either need to buy customers, as you said, uh, or you, you needed to 
uh, in the end, you know, actually finance product development. But on the on the flip side, I think one could argue that the, a lot of deep tech ventures require more time till they can even get to that point of capitalization. I think of another accelerator team that comes to mind that like, you know, were great, but they needed more lab time before they were ready to, to get those first checks. So it just was a longer cycle. Fortunately, non-dilutive funding, things like exist angels that really believe in the vision and have patient capital will are almost necessary for them to get to that point where they can then go out and raise the big money they need to take their their proven tech you know into a commercial state so i think it it does have to come from from both places for for those types of businesses Okay, guys, I think this is a very fascinating conversation and I think we could go on for another hour, but let's kind of... Oh no, we're done. I feel like we just got... I mean, this is, I think this is typical of our conversations though, right? Like we could sit here for hours talking about this stuff, but Dries, can you maybe, before we wrap everything up, can you just kind of offer the listeners that maybe haven't seen the Vehau footprint, a quick kind of summary and overview of, uh, of the current state of the ecosystem. Yes. Yeah, so I think, uh, we looked at Crunchbase, uh, all the, the venture transactions that were done in Germany were approximately like 800 transactions, um, 826, if I remember well, of which like 570 disclosed, uh, the amount of funding raised. Um, and so Weau uh, at like, if I remember well, percentages like um, five percent of all the transactions were done by Weau companies, so companies with at least one Weau founder, and that represented eight percent of all the funding. And so you also see that on average, Weau companies are more able to raise substantial funding than non-Weau companies. And again, we have to make the disclaimer that does not automatically reflect success, but it's at least reflects an ability to raise funding. It, it also reflects a bit of kind of growth mindset that these companies tend to have. What we also noticed, and I think that's on the one hand interesting, but also to some extent we need to take a deeper look there, is that our ecosystem seems to be very concentrated. Mm -hmm. So we have a very concentrated ecosystem in Berlin where we have a huge impact. Yeah, so 19% of all uh, funding raised in Berlin came from WAU companies. And we also have a very nice cluster in North Rhine-Westfalen. So actually kind of around our campus in Dusseldorf, we see quite some early stage seed funding emerging from different uh, startups. And also there, I think the WAU accelerator had a significant impact. I think quite some of them actually originated from our accelerator. So that's very nice to see. But at the same time, we have to be honest and, and to see that in other regions, WAU funding seems to be completely absent. Mm -hmm. uh, last year, it was a bit more dispersed. This year, it's really concentrated. So it might also a bit, be a bit coincidence. But it, I think it also shows that we have room for kind of... Um, having a bigger impact in other regions in Germany. So I think that that might be definitely something. Max, do you want to add something to that? Even, even though I have to say... It, <laughs> I see you very eager to say something here. Because, because it is funny, you know, having been in Aachen and, and having had and still having a lot of touch points with representatives of other university ecosystems, the idea that your university startup ecosystem 
might have impact anywhere else than your own region is actually very rare. You know, like technical mm. university mm. Munich dominates Munich. The Berlin universities yes. dominate Berlin, like with with their own. Uh, and so on. So, you know, normally university ecosystems have this role of being a, of, of being kind of the, the hub for a, a local startup community. And that's, that's for better or worse, not the case at all in Bill. So that we even have two areas yeah. where we have a big footprint, uh, is, is already, I think, uh, special. Yeah, and at the same time, it's a bit ironic that WAU has been founded by the Handelskammer in, in the region to stimulate economic activity in the region, and that now it turns out that we are, with, at least in terms of startup activities, because of course that's not everything we do at WAU, but in terms of startups, that actually our footprint seems to be mainly Berlin. That's mm. uh, quite uh, an interesting observation. To make. So yeah. w what the, the takeaway here is WAU founders... Feel free to move to Sachsen-Anhalt next year to start your business. <laughs> It'll be good for our distribution. No, but uh, I uh, I talked recently with one of our startups that is uh, uh, kind of expanding, very successful, and they mm -hmm. were actually considering that region because in terms of if you need to do manufacturing and mm -hmm. in terms of subsidies, it actually is a very attractive region right. nowadays. Right. And we see more and more deep tech co-founding happening in Dresden, for example. So there again, mm -hmm. you see the no. potential of these technical universities mm -hmm. that are dispersed all around you. Yeah. You know, no. I, I want to maybe make a suggestion. I don't want to put any pressure or work on anyone's <laughs> shoulders, but... The data set that I think would be, look, we know Vehu has a big footprint. We know the big fundraising companies have an inordinate number of Vehu founders at the helm, right? What If we want to see trends in the next generation and start predicting success and seeing what our future has in store, and we're looking at fundraising numbers, I would like to know what the fund rate, those precede seed fundraising rounds of Vehu Ventures look like as compared to the mean or the median, right? Like, are we raising more money in the early stage? You know, we talked about storytelling earlier. If Vehu students are really good storytellers, well, then they should be raising more money in that early stage, right? If they can sell aspiration and grand visions, then they should be raising bigger tickets in their seed rounds. I think we have some of that data. I know a lot of that's stuff isn't reported, but it would be really interesting to look at startup performance at that early stage with that metric, because I think that shows what the next five to 10 years is going to look like. No. I think uh, the challenge is a bit that there will be indeed a kind of publication bias there. Mm -hmm that actually in terms of seed and pre-seed rounds, the more substantial ones are the ones that are been kind of yeah. uh, published uh, and so end up in these databases like Crunchbase Deal Room. So there might be there a bit of a bias, but mm. still I think it's an interesting exercise mm. to do to see comparing at least the ones that are published. Do we mm -hmm. see that within this specific group, WAU companies tend to get more pre-seed seed funding than others. Right. That should not be a big challenge to be very honest. Yeah, but I mean, you make a good point nowadays where we're seeing more companies here, you know, taking on convertibles that look like safes. Those non-dilutive rounds yeah. don't get reported as much, so they're a little bit trickier. Yeah. yeah. No, and that's a good point. Actually, that's a challenge for our academic research. Mm -hmm. These things are actually very difficult to identify, even if you go to the Handelsregister, 
and you want to kind of play detective and try to find out uh, but you can find convertible depth and saves it's it's almost impossible mm -hmm. to do so that's right. uh, that's a bit of a data collection challenge yeah interesting okay would, I, I didn't anticipate yep. that I would get homework at the end of this podcast <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time that's, a new, that, that's a new trend in this podcast Th that there, I get there's homework there's a whole bunch of bachelor students going yeah Garrett <laughs> <laughs> okay, Max, we, we always end this episode with asking for some suggestions about books and podcasts that you can recommend to our audience. Any specific suggestions? Yeah. So uh, in terms of podcasts, I have this, this, this problem uh, with my work that I select my podcast based on whether we are ULAM, uh, got interviewed or not. So the, the, like my podcast yeah. time is, is very much centered around that startup insider, Deutsche startups, uh, unicorn bakery, whatever it is. When I see there's a there, well, I'm there. I listen to it just also to, you know, get, get to know our community. So now, now you listed all our competitors. I obviously listen to every single episode of this podcast and I can just urge also our students to do the same, especially if they want to get to know the generations that came before them. Uh, because, mm. you know, that's that, that's mm. such an important part of it. In terms of, you know, what I do beyond podcasts is I, I always, um, like, consume multiple books at the time and not being, a, like, crazy with books. You know, I, you won't get a hundred book list uh, at the end of the year for me. But um, And I always focus on fiction. I, I love fiction. I need that, actually, for myself. Right. Um, so I, I always have, you know, one fiction book that I'm reading and one fiction book that I'm listening to, depending on what mode of transportation or whatever I'm at the moment on. And um, there, I just finished um, like uh, like a classic that's kind of, you know, that's not, you know, a, a classic in the sense of, you know, um, iRobot or something. So uh, you will see mostly science fiction, as I mentioned, <laughs> but um, I listened to, uh, to to The Circle um, by Dave Eggers, um, which is funny because it has the, kind of this intersection to my professional life dealing with this kind of Google-esque huge company. Can highly recommend it if you spend some time in this environment, um, some some story elements are a little bit cringeworthy, but the overall feeling that you get and that's and uh, imposed on you is, is very nice. Um, the other one is the Catechal uh, for Liebowitz uh, by Walter Miller. That's a, actually an old um, science fiction book, you know, about post-nuclear worlds uh, where actually Catholic priests try to preserve knowledge and so on, <laughs> entertainment and entertaining and weird. Uh, the the last non-fiction book um, that I actually read uh, was A Swim in the Pond in the Rain by George Saunders. And it's amazing. It's a book about storytelling that analyzes short stories from old Russian authors uh, where you can learn a lot, you know, and that's, that's short stories that I would have never read. Uh, and they're analyzed in such a profound way. And I think you can take a lot from that. And that's it's anyways also my, my my biggest suggestion that you know everyone in the entrepreneurship space deals a lot with storytelling. I think I don't have to tell that to Garrett, uh, but um, yeah, highly recommend all all three books. I can recommend. 
I, I love your Perfect. bent towards dystopian fish fiction. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be processing that, yeah. that later, Max. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll have a reading list for that. Thanks. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Awesome. That actually fits with our inspiration sessions. They also mm. always feel quite dystopian. <laughs> Is that a dig, Dries? Are you suggesting? <laughs> no, it's, <laughs> it's the fact. It's a fact. <laughs> we can get down pretty much. Okay, dark guys. <laughs> we always have the ambition to uh, get this kind of uh, episode in one hour. We always say that at the beginning to our guests and we never succeed. But I think that also shows that we, we had an interesting and funny conversation. So uh, I hope uh, for our listeners that they also enjoyed this conversation. Please don't forget to rate us on your favorite podcast platform if you want. That's very important to us. And we look forward to have you as a listener again next time. Okay, bye. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Max. A pleasure. Thanks.